0: Hello, and welcome to Moments That Made Her, a podcast where the rare and unique women that hold senior private equity roles share their stories, including the key personal and professional moments that define their journeys and the lessons that they learned along the way. I'm Kirstie McGuire, Executive Director of PEWIN. For those of you joining us for the first time, Moments That Made Her is a production of the Private Equity Women Investor Network also known as PEWIN. We are the preeminent organization for senior-level women investment professionals in private equity. PEWIN provides its members with opportunities to network, share ideas, make deep connections with peers, and empower each other to succeed. Our mission is to increase the profile of women in private equity, and our members represent institutions with over $3 trillion in assets under management. To learn more, please visit pewin.org. The host of Moments That Made Her is Kelly Williams. Many of you know Kelly as the founding chair of PE Win, as well as the founder of the legendary private market solution business known as the Customized Fund Investment Group, which she and her team grew to manage $30 billion of assets until she let it sail in 2014. She is now the CEO of the Williams Legacy Foundation and serves on the board of the Greenbrier Companies and Grasshopper Bank, and chairs the board of the Smithsonian American Art Museum. Thank you for joining us for today's episode.
1: Welcome to Moments That Made Her. I'm your host, Kelly Williams, and I am so excited today to have one of my dear friends, as my guest, Pam Hedrickson, who is the vice chairman of the Riverside Companies. We have known each other for many years. I was her client and limited partner for many years. We are also friends and not exactly neighbors, but um, we live on the same island in the summer in Nantucket. And so it's I'm so excited to have you today here as my guest, Pam.
2: And I am excited and flattered to be with you. And since the island is only 7 by 14 miles, I think we kind of are neighbors. Yeah, I know. We're probably closer than most neighbors. So Um, anyway, well, I am really
1: excited to have you here on Moments That Made Her, which, as you know, is the signature podcast for the Private Equity Women Investor Network. And I'm going to start where we always start, which is tell us a little bit about how and where you grew up. So
2: I grew up in New York City. Um, I had um, a very, you know, traditional upbringing with um, a very strong relationship with my both of my parents, but especially my father. And I think it would be very interesting to sort of talk to a lot of the senior women in private equity and see whether there's a correlation between strength of relationship with their fathers. Um, he w- was very much a proponent of women working. Um, in fact, I remember one time him saying to me as I, as I was getting married, well, you're never going to stop working, correct? <laughs> um, <laughs> and, uh, and I went to, I was fortunate to go to a private school in New York, which was a proponent of girls can do anything they want. Um, and so I very much grew up with the mantra of, Work hard enough and doesn't matter. You can do whatever you want to do. And that has always been my mantra.
1: Well, I think that's fantastic. And I, I think you're right. It would be interesting. Maybe I'll have to add that into the podcast and ask uh, women about their relationships with their fathers. Like you, I had a very close relationship with my father. I still do. Um, and uh, but I, And I also had a working mom. So I also had a very close relationship with her. And one of the things my dad taught me as a kid, because we grew up very modestly, was no one's better than you, but you're not better than anyone else, which I thought was a very grounding thing to learn as a child. And similar
2: to the message you got, which is you can be anything, but that doesn't mean that you're better than anyone. A hundred percent. And the message I got from my mother was you treat every person exactly the same. Exactly the same way, which is sort of the same message that you got, Kelly. So yeah, so I agree with that.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, I always I always attribute that to my skills with um, working with clients because you know your ability to kind of put your ego aside and just relate to people as people
2: is really something I think you have to learn as a, as a young person. I think, I think that's right, and I think as a leadership skill, empathy is extremely underrated, and your ability to understand what makes a person tick is really critical, and to understand that you're not better or, you know, worse than they are. Right, exactly I think that right. that makes a big, huge difference. So. Well,
1: so given, um, given that you are one of the rare native New Yorkers, um, tell me a little bit about your first job.
2: So my first job was actually cleaning houses at age 12 on Nantucket. I don't um, think I knew that. You've never told me yeah, that before. So so that was, um, yeah, a very interesting job. I certainly learned a lot. I had some clients, speaking of the um, learning what makes people tick, I had one client in particular who... Um, Required that lettuce, spinach, etc. be washed a certain way and then put in a pillowcase in the dryer. <laughs> um, and I, that's an interesting that, salad spinner. I <laughs> thought that that was quite odd. <laughs> that's a riot. But I, you know, I did exactly as I was told, as any good twelve-year-old would do, and um, then came home and said to my mother, "Oh my gosh, you can't believe what I had to do today." But um, <laughs> you know, it was a very, it was a very I think having work ethic starting when you're young is really important. Um, so that that was my first job. And um, my jobs became slightly more glamorous as I uh, learned how to play tennis and became a tennis pro um, also in Nantucket. But uh, that was that was a better or at least a slightly more glamorous job. Yeah,
1: for sure. Definitely a little more glamour there. That's a, that is a funny story. I'm going to have to... You know my husband is a, is a retired professional chef. I'm going to have to share that tip with him and see if it actually works. That yeah, is so
2: Please. Cool. <laughs> please do. I will. Please do.
1: So um, given those auspicious beginnings with spinning um, greens in the dryer, um, when did private equity show up on your radar screen? At, at what point did you think... Um, you know, this was a career path for you. At what point did you even hear of private equity?
2: So it's a funny question because I really never thought about it. And in fact, you know, my whole career was in finance, but in a way that that was sort of odd, too, because I came out of business school and I much to the distress of the, the Northwestern Kellogg placement agents, you know, placement group. I thought I had really strong analytic skills and really strong interpersonal skills. And therefore I could do anything as I had been told by my father. So I interviewed for marketing jobs at Johnson and Johnson and Procter and Gamble. I interviewed for consulting jobs at McKinsey. I interviewed for investment banking jobs at Goldman Sachs. Um, and, you know, I was very fortunate with sort of the go-go years of the MBA in 1984 and had offers from a number of different firms. And I was walking down the street one day, I had been a summer intern at Chemical Bank. I had split the summer and done half at Procter & Gamble and half at, at uh, Chemical Bank. Uh, long story as to how that happened. But I was walking down the street in New York and I walked into the Chemical Bank and accepted the offer. Wow. Um, yeah which was very surprising to my parents who were like, okay. Um, but you know, and I think honestly, if Procter and Gamble had been in New York city, I might've made a different choice. I really, I don't know for sure. Um, and I spent, you know, 22 years, uh, at chemical bank and it's, uh, (laughs) spawns <laughs> or it's its children yes um, you know I never moved but the bank changed around me multiple times and um, I learned a lot of different things and I remember early on a very senior person at Chemical Bank saying to me, if you think of your career as a pyramid then what you want to do is build the skills at the base of the pyramid that are not as strong for you. Um, and in my case, strangely, that was math. Hmm. Um, I, you know, I was strong interpersonally. I was strong creatively. Um, and eventually I was obviously able to build that skill as well. And so that was, um, that was very fortunate and I did a lot of different things at chemical Bank. So then, uh, chemical bank. Is now JPMorgan Chase. Uh, Jamie Dimon has become the CEO. And, you know, I'm sort of thinking, I don't really want to live through another big bank merger because I've now done at least four. Mm-hmm. And that might be enough in anyone's lifetime. So a headhunter calls me from this firm called Riverside. And I, I truly had never heard of her. I, I said, what do you do, make boats?" I mean, I really, I, I had no idea. And um, so she she said, you know, this firm is looking for a COO and your name has come up. And I basically crumpled up the message and threw it in the trash. Wow! Because at that point, you know, I was on the operating committee at J.P. Morgan. You know, I ran a huge business in global lending and liquidity. And... I went home and I said to my husband, who's a, who runs a metal market investment bank. So I got this call today from this firm called Riverside. And he said, I am so sorry you didn't pursue that because they have the best reputation in that firm. So I was like, well, sorry, I crumpled the number and too late. <laughs> <laughs> so a year goes by and the same headhunter calls me back and she says, I know you're not interested but they still haven't found the person that they're looking for with the right personality and sort of the right fit. Well, at that point, I had gotten even more sick of, you know, what I was doing and and sort of felt like maybe even more impetus for more mergers coming down the pike. So I went over and talked to Baila Zigothy and Stuart Cole, who are the co-CEOs of Riverside, as you know well, Kelly. And, um, you know, that was kind of that, that is really how I got to private equity. That is a fascinating story. Um,
1: I know how compelling those two can be. And uh, you know, the story that the way I got to Riverside was I was doing a diligence call on another fund, and Stuart was on the reference call list. And he gave a great reference and a balanced and fair and thoughtful reference. And then I said, well, what about you guys? Are you raising money? (laughs) (laughs) And he said, yeah, well, as a matter of fact, we are. And, you know, we're kind of almost oversubscribed. And so I talked my way in and the rest was history. We, you know, obviously we had a great relationship, but, um, well, I'm so glad, obviously for lots of reasons that you took the second call. Uh, and I hope you are too. I'm sure you would have ended up as the CEO of JP Morgan Chase had you stayed
2: Probably not, but I think I'm not. I mean, I, the truth is I love little businesses. I love what we do. You know, I, I just being able to go into a little business where you really matter and you can really help makes such a difference.
1: I think that's right. You know, having, having the ability to impact and use, use all the skills that you've, um, you've garnered over your years, um, it does make a difference, particularly in these smaller family-owned businesses.
2: Absolutely true.
1: Well, so are are there certain inflection points or are there certain things that kind of stand out in your mind throughout your career that positioned you to have staying power and stay in the finance industry and particularly kind of stay in private equity all these years?
2: Yeah, you know... It's interesting because obviously people often say, "Well, you you go to meetings, whatever." You're very often the only ro- woman in the room, although that has changed a lot, um, you know, over the past five years. The and you know, thanks greatly to programs like Pink Light and um, and other great things you have done. There are lots more women who are involved in private equity, and and I do think that is a wonderful thing. And. I think it's important for us to pave the way for those people. Um, I I remember Michelle Noon saying, "You and you and Jerry and everybody have been so helpful to me," um, and I, I do think we need to be helpful to each other. I think that's that's really critical. Uh, but in terms of just inflection points, you know, the whole being a woman, I never thought about it. Just, I mean. To me, it was never an issue. I felt like I belonged in any room. I was just smart as anybody else. Um, I remember one time I was at a meeting at the SEC and um, a gentleman, w- we were talking about private equity and Dodd-Frank, you know, and sort of the whole square peg round hole thing. and. This gentleman said, you know, for me, this is a lot like going to a gynecologist. I sort of know what they do, but it doesn't really apply to me. <laughs> and of course, I'm the only female in the room. So as he turns and turns beet red when he realizes that I'm now in his line of sight, um, I just laughed and said, that is an, actually a perfect analogy, but it just wouldn't have worked if I had said it. <laughs> Um, So I do think humor diffuses situations. And I I think, um, you know, that's been very helpful.
1: You know, I remember a story um, and it was told by a woman at um, at JPMorgan Chase about her benefiting from men decoding things for her. You know, she'd go to a meeting and think something had happened. And then one of her male colleagues would pull her aside afterwards and say,
2: OK, well, this is what was going on. Did that ever happen to you? Well, absolutely. And I and I, you know, Jimmy Lee was my mentor or sponsor, I guess, is really the more apt word at JP Morgan Chase. And he was an unpo- it's sort of sad you actually can't do this probably today who would pull you aside and go, would you just get your act together? Because that is not at all what anybody was thinking. So I think over the course of time, what you learn is men and women hear differently. Um, you know, the, the example I think one of my bosses used was, so I'm going to promote a man and a woman. And the, the man says, yes, this is great, I'm all in. And the woman says, you know, I have young children. I need to think about this. There's a lot of travel. So what I hear is she's thinking about it and he's not. And what a man hears is he's confident and she's not. Mm -hmm. And so, so I think you do, I think decoding is a really good way to put it. And I think that's important. It's so funny that you give the
1: example of Jimmy Lee, because he's exactly the person I know that I figured that (laughs) and it was the same kind of conversation like went in closed the door um and yeah and I you know I actually think that for men to be allies to women that's one of the things that they can do is is to say look you need to understand this is how people are looking at it or you know what you think just happened in that meeting is not what happened in that meeting um I I think that's a actually a good service that colleagues can do.
0: We would like to take a brief break to thank PEWIN's founding sponsors, Kane Anderson Real Estate and KPMG, as well as our platinum sponsor, TPG. If you're interested in sponsorship opportunities, please contact us at info at pewin.org. Now back to today's guest.
2: I couldn't agree with you more, but I also think what what you had said earlier about um, the ability to understand what makes a person tick, you know, just just to be empathetic, really matters because i think what you wanted as as a woman in finance you want to make sure that people don't uh feel uncomfortable around you that you're not the person who always has the chip on their shoulder you know or who reacts to things i remember once when i was young trammell Crow, and i think he was in his 70s at the time saying to me you got any money honey well you know, you could take great offense to that. But on the other hand, the man is 70 plus years old and I'm 20 plus years old. So I don't care. Yes, we do for you, Mr. Crow.
1: <laughs> that's a, well, that's a great example. I mean, one of the questions I was going to ask you is are there times and we both have been doing this long enough. The answer is absolutely yes, that you were particularly aware that you were a woman in the industry and and people make you aware uh, sometimes, because I think a lot of us just like do our jobs, and it's not till someone points it out or treats us markedly differently that it right. it really stands out. But is there anything like during your time in private equity, particularly in private equity, that stands out?
2: Really, no. But I will say one thing that I have advised other women is just know the facts better than anybody else in the room because. Nobody can ever criticize you or um, second guess what you're saying if you actually know the facts. I remember one time I was moderating a panel and it had, you know, Steve Pagluka and a bunch of, you know, very senior private equity people on it. And Steve said to me afterwards, he goes, how do you know all that? (laughs) Um, And I was like, well... Because I actually studied before I did this, you know. Right. Um, and I think it's really important. I agree. I, I mean, women tend to overprepare
1: anyway. I mean, I remember right. walking into meetings literally carrying stacks of files. And my business partner would not even have a slip of paper on him and would like right. wing it. But, but that I think that, in you know, we, women tend to put a lot of stress on themselves. But at the same time, um, you tend to get recognized as, as a sector expert when you do that.
2: Absolutely. Because you do know the facts. Absolutely. Yeah.
1: When all the heads turn to you, uh, when the tough question gets asked, that's, that's a pretty good indicator.
2: A hundred percent, a hundred percent of the time. So
1: given this, um, this career that you've had, is there anything that sticks out in particular as a
2: high point? Well, the whole I mean, the whole Washington situation has been an interesting one. Certainly um, what happened was I mean, the way this started was that the at the time, the private equity growth capital council, terrible, the worst
1: name ever, um, right?
2: um, Had called up, I think, Bela and said, so we need to explain to the Small Business Committee in Congress how private equity supports small businesses. And our members, you know, who are Blackstone, Carlisle, et cetera, are probably are going to be less effective doing that than perhaps a firm like yours. And so Bayla looks around and says, huh, let's not send another middle-aged white guy. <laughs> Pam, you go. <laughs> so um, it turned out, and I, and I was saying this actually the other day to someone. So I, I went to this congressional hearing, which regardless, is a, it's an intimidating setting because, you know, it's it's Congress. Right. So um, and I'm watching this panel as people are quoting statistics and, you know, really boring stuff. And I'm watching all the representatives fall asleep in their chairs. I mean, they, and half of them aren't even in the room. So I decide I'm going to tell a story. And I tell a story of this little company in Virginia that you know made laminate for windows. There's actually some Congress people um, now who walk around and say that we, we were responsible for the laminate in the Longworth building. I don't even think that's true. <laughs> But I mean, it's fine to have people say that about you. Anyway, um, that sort of led to this odyssey of you know what? This is actually Pam is really good at this. So um, let's, anything that we need her to do, we're going to have her do. And, you know, I am currently vice chairman of the American Investment Council. So obviously, there's a lot of um, important people. I was at a meeting with uh, Kristen Cinema on friday and henry kravis so you know that the exposure there has been great
1: yeah oh, well i agree and you know we've enjoyed the opportunity to to work with aic a much better name um and yes. and maybe you know it might be interesting to take a moment uh to to talk a little bit about how some of the proposed tax changes would have particularly affected women
2: Right. Well, there was a a proposal that came out of the House Ways and Means Committee. Um, I'm happy to say it seems, at least for the moment, to not be there anymore, but uh, which which had several provisions with regard to carry. One was that the hold would extend from three to five years, but there was this clock issue which said that the fund had to be substantially all invested before you can even start the clock. Well, Originally, we sort of thought, well, that might mean eight years before you could get capital treatment, capital gains treatment. But if you really read it closely, and you're a firm like Riverside, which is constantly raising funds, you actually could never meet it. Mm-hmm. So um, that was one issue. The really big issue for me, for all of these great, you know, women-owned firms that are starting to to um, pr- propagate, is the carry. Um, is, is that if you transferred carry from anybody, you, you caused the entire carry pool to be subject to ordinary income rates. And that both disincented promotion, and then the clock issue disincented, why am I going to take the risk on anybody right. if I'm not going to get paid for it? I'm just not, I'm just not willing to take that risk. Yeah. So um, I'm, I'm glad that uh, and and I think a lot of people tend to go to Washington in this incendiary you know my hair's on fire and our approach has been much more well, did you actually intend to do this and do you understand that this is what the consequences of this are because I think that's that makes people listen better
1: I agree, I agree that you know some of these things
2: <clears throat>
1: become very irrational i I'm I'm adamantly against <clears throat> demonizing success. I think that's a mistake, and you know everybody knows my politics. I'm I'm a liberal Democrat, but um, I I actually think that um, AIC and and uh, Riverside being thoughtful and recognizing that not always having the same cast of middle aged white guys go there to make the case, no one's really sympathetic about carried interest tax treatment. But they are sympathetic about opportunities for women and people of color and diversifying the industry. And if they understand that they're making it harder for people by doing this, I think that's a much that's a much more winning argument.
2: I agree. And I I think that the industry has changed. I mean, the plutocrats who maybe I mean, if if Leon Black is your poster child, that's probably less um, appealing for the private equity industry. But realistically, most of those people are gone mm-hmm. and or, or doing something else now. And the newer firms are running in a different way. And I think that's a great thing. Yeah. Well, so speaking, you know, of an
1: example of maybe ways things shouldn't work or maybe, you know, Leon's an example of, of uh, how things should definitely not work. Um, all of us have situations in our career where maybe things haven't worked out as well as we would have liked um and so is there anything you would share with the audience that you know a challenge you had a, you know something you might even characterize as a failure and and how you made it through that
2: so and i point to this because i really learned a lot from this when i was in college And I was asked to chair the Residential Life Committee because Duke University had a Title IX suit filed against it for residential housing. And I remember saying to the dean, I don't think a student should chair this committee. It's just a bad idea. But I got talked into it. And um, the committee operated an executive session. So a lot of pressure on this committee because people care a lot about where they live, as it turns out. Um, So, and of course, back in the olden days when I went to college, the drinking age was 18. Um, I was in those days as well. (laughs) Yes, well, (laughs) so um, happy hour on a Friday, a group releases a draft of this report that we're going to issue, including how people voted. Wow. And. I have rocks thrown through my window, bricks. Um, it's it's pretty bad. Um, and the dean of students comes over and says, I I, I want to take you off campus and put you in a hotel, and I refused because I, I was like, No, you know, I'm 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 sticking it out. Someone on the committee then tried to commit suicide, which I realized wasn't my fault, but I mean it was really a disaster. Oh my. So A few things I learned from that. One, never, ever go against your gut. Mm -hmm. If your gut is telling you something, believe it. Um, And two, figure out ways when a group is under a lot of stress and pressure, figure out ways to relieve it because I I think that was a a huge problem. And those are lessons that have served me very well, I think, over the course of time. But I would say that was a failure.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, and... In some ways, thank goodness it happened earlier in your life so that you could apply those absolutely. lessons, right? Um, right. That's I, I think true. we all know, you know, there are issues with having a culture and having maybe a generation of kids growing up not not knowing failure, <laughs> and uh, if it if they do find it way late in life, it's a lot harder to grapple with than
2: if they have that experience yeah. early on. That is- definitely true. I was, I do consider myself quite fortunate to have had that sort of mess um, at a reasonably young age when it wasn't, you know, deleterious to my career, or my future particularly. So.
1: Well, so switching gears, um, is there something that, that you would point to that was particularly fun or creative that you did in your career that really stands out?
2: Um, so, I created a credit card when I was at J.P. Morgan. Wow, that's pretty cool. And um, it was really fun. Um, A credit card had been created by the credit card company. And I remember my boss and I um, got sort of, you know, um, chastised by the head of the credit card company that that it wasn't being sold to the high net worth clients. And I remember saying, well, perhaps we should, do a focus group and talk to them and see what it is that they actually want instead of trying to cram something down their throats. Um, And we did that and it turned out, and I think this was a surprise to people, they actually didn't want the equivalent of a black card. What they wanted was something more equivalent to Amex's platinum Mm. uh, because the High Net Worth group, I mean, they they very often said this. I can't even tell you how many times I heard this in a focus group. I don't need travel miles. I have my own airplane. <laughs> um, but I want to be able to buy a Corvette on my credit card. And I never want a voice response unit ever when I call. And so we, we basically built that card. And then we created a concierge service that... Um, was sort of hotel staff that had been trained. So I actually remember my sister was, uh, you know, I had, had a high net worth group at JP Morgan, and one of her clients was trying to arrange in a club in New York City for her his uncle to play the saxophone <laughs> or something. I, it was something really bizarre like that. And the concierge arranged it, and this client sent $5 million the next day Wow. To be managed. Wow. So it was just it was a really great um, it was a really great thing. And then my old boss actually went to run private banking at UBS. And he said when clients called him to ask about a credit card or he would be having this conversation, he would say, you know, really, you should go to JP Morgan for that because they have the best in the industry. Mm. So
1: I'm not sure they still they have that. No, I don't think they do. As a anymore, client of J.P. So. Morgan, I can tell you that my right. credit card experience is not like that.
2: <laughs> yes, no, nor is mine anymore. <laughs> <laughs> right. So uh, they need you, Pam. Probably. Well, it probably. I mean, who knows how profitable it was? It may not have been, uh, you know, profitable. But I think if you looked at it holistically, um, you know, you look at the five million dollars you got as a consequence of the the credit card. That would be a better way of looking at it, right?
1: Although, as we know, institutions like that don't always look at it holistically. Correct. Yes. Exactly. Yes. Um, well, now I'm going to take you to um, my much beloved lightning round, and okay. uh, and get your response reaction to some of these questions. Um, the first is, what is a great book that you've read recently?
2: Well, on a, a phrase coined by my children, the wog, which stands for walking and jogging combined, I I have listened to The Dutch House, which is narrated ah. by Tom Hanks. And I, lo- I just think he's the greatest. I mean, it almost wouldn't matter how good the book is, although the book is great. But he is just an unbelievable narrator. So I loved it. I love hearing that. In fact, I just you can tell how busy
1: we both are because we're like a few years behind in what's current but i just finished um a gentleman in moscow and i literally just started on the plane on monday the dutch house which has been sitting (laughs) which has been sitting in my kindle forever so that's great to hear (laughs) um and maybe uh maybe i'll have to listen to tom hanks
2: a little Tom bit. Hanks is really great because I don't usually I usually am like you. I read books. You know, I tend mm-hmm. to not listen to them. But because I was wogging, I decided to do something different. Ah,
1: love that. Um, yeah. So what's your guilty pleasure binge
2: watch these days? Oh, you know, we're so bad. We're, we, you know, we don't we we tend to go to, you know, the West Wing because we just. <laughs> are such so ridiculously boring. (laughs) But I guess we've been watching Succession. Of course. Which I have sort of a love-hate relationship with because I hate all the characters. But then I'm sort of in it and I have to watch it. Sort of how I feel like I read Game of Thrones. um, And as, you know, another person, yet another person is getting their head chopped off and blood is spurting all over. I'm like, why am I reading this? Right. But It was just one of those things you're in. Exactly. I know. I was,
1: Andrew and I were catching up on Succession yesterday and it was sort of the same thing. I was like, there's not a single redeeming character in this show. No one to root for. The problem is with Succession and with Billions, given that they're very close to our industries, sometimes it gives me PTSD to watch them because I'm like, I know that guy. (laughs) I know what's going on there. So
2: (laughs) you really don't need to have that when you
1: go home at night, right? You really don't. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I totally-
2: actually we really we recently started watching murders and murders in the Berlin, oh that's very it's good that is a hilarious yeah. and and a very funny yeah no I, I i love that one i'm glad you're watching that that's it's a yeah. uniquely new york
1: uh show exactly. so um so what's your cell phone wallpaper
2: my children of course
1: <laughs> yes <laughs> um and if you didn't have a career in finance slash private equity, what would your career be?
2: Uh, I would probably do something related to cooking. Really? So Andrew, and I share that. Ah, yes. yes. Very good. Um, in fact, during the pandemic, and this, I, I, I have been sort of working on a cookbook. Someone gave me the recipe writer's guide, which it turns out is really hard to write a cookbook because you. You know, you know how to cook yourself, but other people who are reading it don't necessarily. So um, anyway, but that's it's, impressive. That's uh, fun. Oh, well, OK, yeah. we're going to have to get together and cook in Nantucket. Andrew would love that. Well, we that. will do that. For sure. Absolutely. That would be great. We will do that. So that
1: I think I know the answer to this one, but are you a dog or a cat person? Dog. Yeah. <laughs> I know I know you love
2: dogs. I know Well, I'm also violently allergic to cats. Oh I, that I didn't know. So yeah, so I mean, if I get near a cat, I can't breathe, so that's that's a problem. Ah well, there you go.
1: Yeah, good, good choice. choice. <laughs> so I'm not sure. I, I'm not sure I would have a choice. right. Um, and then my final question is, what's the best piece of advice you've ever been given?
2: Can I do two? Sure, of course. Uh, So one was, if you don't understand something, ask. Because people have this tendency to use lots of jargon, and it doesn't necessarily mean they actually understand what they're talking about. So if you can't explain something in plain English to someone, chances are you don't understand it. Mm -hmm. So that was one. Mm -hmm. And the second was, if you get the phone call, you own the problem. Ah. You know, so so you are responsible no matter what. Mm-hmm. If you get that phone call, don't don't pass them off. Right. Figure out how to solve it yourself. Two very. Or, good. You know, at least check in.
1: Yeah, very good piece of advice, and ones that uh, I wouldn't say are typical, but excellent um, and resonate. Well, this has been so much fun to do. So uh, great to see And even you. though we've known each other for so many years, I learned things about you that I didn't know. And I know our listeners, I'm sure, are going to have questions, so they'll probably grab you at a conference and follow up. But I am so thrilled. Pam Hendrickson, thank you so much for being my guest today on Moments That Made Her. And thank you for being such a wonderful member of the Private Equity Women Investor Network.
2: Well, and thank you for starting it, Kelly. I mean, we should actually do this podcast in reverse, and I'll ask you the questions. <laughs> I feel and like you every- should be your own guest. <laughs> Everybody has heard me so many times over the years, but no,
1: yeah, may- not maybe not one me- no. day we'll we'll turn the tables. But anyway, yeah, thank you so good. much. A pleasure. Thanks.
3: Thank you for joining us for today's episode of Moments That Made Her. I'm Scotty Wardell, co-chair of the PEWIN Communications Committee. As a reminder, the content in this recording is for general information purposes only and does not constitute advice. We give no assurance or warranty regarding accuracy, timeliness, or applicability of any of the contents of this recording. This recording is provided as is and PEWIN expressly disclaims any and all warranties expressed or implied to the extent permitted by law except where acknowledged the copyright and all intellectual property rights in all material in this recording are owned by P.E. Win and our affiliates and should not be reproduced without our prior written consent. Other organizations or brand names used within this recording are for identification purposes only. The content set forth in this recording may not be sold, reproduced, or distributed without P.E. Win's prior written consent. Any third-party trademarks, service marks, and logos are the property of their respective owners. Any further rights not specifically granted herein are reserved. Thank you again for joining us today, and we hope you tune in for another episode soon.